Bibles to Luke chapter 17. And uh, we'll be reading verses 11 through 19. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? Or where are the nine? They are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. One of the most conspicuous evidences of faith in the life of a Christian is thankfulness. Not a broad, general kind of thankfulness, but thankfulness to the one true living God. Thankfulness to Jesus Christ for all that he has done and accomplished for us. It is indeed inevitable that one who truly knows his past slavery and bondage to sin and to Satan, the curse of the law that rested upon him, the condemnation that he deserved, the eternal wrath of God in hell that awaited him cannot but help, cannot but help give thanks to the one who has graciously set him free. One of the sins that Christians, I believe, so often all of us fall into is that of unthankfulness. For we do not have to speak out bitterly in anger and resentment against God in order to be unthankful. We do not have to necessarily voice our complaints and grumbling to the Lord in order to express our unthankfulness. We simply need to forget to express our thankfulness to the Lord for all that he has done for us to be unthankful. Now, we may never forget to be thankful when we sit down to eat because we will have a prayer of thanksgiving over our meal. And that's great and that's good and that's appropriate and right for us to do. But for one to be thankful in terms of all that he has freely received from the Lord, he should be sincerely expressing his joyful thanksgiving to the Lord every day, all the time. Not just at the time he sits down to eat, but throughout the day, reflecting upon all that the Lord 
has done for him and accomplished for him. In fact, this is so clearly revealed as God's will that the Apostle Paul declares, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Not in some things, not in most things, but in everything give thanks. This is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 I've broken down the sermon uh, today into three main points which aren't the typical way I would break down a sermon. Maybe it uh, seems a little bit more like the way that older preachers used to break down their sermons uh, as they would preach, but these are the main points nevertheless that I will be covering. First of all, the exposition of the text. Second, the doctrine from the text. And third, the practical application of the text. First of all, then, the exposition of the text. As the Lord and his disciples headed for Jerusalem, they passed through an area lying between Samaria, which was in the northern part, or in the uh, Galilee, which was in the northern part. Samaria was in the middle part, and Judah was in the southern part. Those are the three parts of Palestine at the time in which Christ lived. Galilee, Samaria, and then Judah. It says he passed through an area lying between Samaria and Galilee in Luke 17.11. As the Lord entered the outskirts of a small village there, there met him from a distance ten men, but not ten normal men. The bodies of these ten men were plagued with the dreaded disease of leprosy, according to Luke 17.12. The disease of leprosy was one which made them a reproach. Not only were there physical ramifications and as it related to uh, their body, the pain and uh, the eating away of the flesh. But a reproach that they became to strangers, a reproach that they became even to their closest family members and friends. Leprosy, there was in effect, cut them off from the temple from the sacrifices within the temple, it cut them off from the priesthood, from the ministry, and from the fellowship of God's people. You see, leprosy like sin, which it pictured and symbolized, separated these poor men from all the public ordinances of God. Leprosy made them untouchables, outcasts, strangers, and beggars, dependent upon whatever anybody would give to them because they couldn't work in a normal type of a situation to earn a living. You might say a leper at that time was the living dead, 
Alive in one sense, but dead in another sense. Just like we were all at one point in our lives, alive in one sense, physically, but dead spiritually. In fact, they were required by the law of God to warn people from a distance that they were lepers by shouting, Unclean! Unclean! To give people sufficient warning to stay away from them. To not come too close to them. This we see in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. And thus we see these ten lepers lifting their voices from a distance rather than coming near to the Lord in Luke 17, verses 12 and 13. Is it any surprise that when these men heard that Christ, who had graciously wrought so many Glorious signs and wonders was passing through their own town that we find them shouting, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Even though leprosy usually attacked the throat and vocal cords, according to historians at that time, uh, as we as we uh, even still have various places where leprosy in various parts of the world exists, that attack the throat and the vocal cords, making speech very painful. Nevertheless, they were not quietly whispering, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They're calmly requesting as if it were no big deal Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. These men expressed their need and they cried out to Christ as loud as they were able to that Christ would show them mercy. Is not the Lord, dear ones, looking for the same desperation and earnest acknowledgement of our need of Him for His mercy in our lives. One who is serious about receiving the mercy of God will be desperate in His plea unto the Lord, in His cry unto the Lord, in His prayer. He will not be indifferent and apathetic and just going through the motions of prayer, unaffected at all. Such a plea, dear ones, should not be uttered to the Lord in the same way we would ask someone at the table to pass us the salt and the pepper. That's not the kind of desperation that the Lord calls for us to exhibit when we are pleading with him for his mercy be shown unto us, knowing our desperate condition, that by nature we are lepers. Upon hearing their earnest plea for mercy, and upon seeing them, the Lord commands them to go immediately to show themselves to the priests, which they set out very quickly to do. It says in Luke 17, verse 14, verse 4, 
And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And in fulfillment of the law of God, that we find in Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 32, the Lord sends the lepers to the priests so that the priest might declare the leper to be cleansed and then admitted back into society, back into the community. <clears throat> but perhaps, perhaps another reason why the Lord sends these lepers back to the priests is to bear testimony. For many of the priests were backslidden. Many of the priests uh, did not acknowledge Christ to be the Messiah. In fact, many of the priests became the very ones who wanted Christ put to death. So perhaps this was a way of bearing testimony to these priests that it was Jesus Christ who had healed these lepers. In fact, many of these priests, even before the crucifixion, we find in John 5.18, were so upset with Christ that they sought to kill him. It says, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. He had not really broken the Sabbath. They thought that, according to them, because he was not keeping their particular view and interpretation, man-made laws and rules pertaining to the Sabbath, that he had broken the Sabbath, but he had kept the Sabbath of the Lord. In fact, he was, he called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord was not sending these lepers to sit under the teaching of unfaithful ministers uh, in this particular instance by sending them back to the priests but rather sending them to bear testimony to the truth. While these ten lepers are yet on their way to the priests, our inspired text states that they were healed. Notice in Luke 17, verse 14b, uh, the latter part. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. Not while they were standing there, not while the Lord had just spoken to them, but as they left and headed back to go to the priests, they were healed. The Lord healed them after they had set out to obey his command. What would have happened had they stood there and argued with the Lord? <clears throat> the Lord, why should we go and show ourselves to the priests when we're not even healed yet? What would have happened, I wonder? What would have happened had they stood there and demanded... Now, Lord, I'm not going to leave here until you heal me. I'm not going to go and make a fool of myself in front of the priests until you heal me first. Or 
Or what would have happened had they said to the Lord, and Lord, are you sure? Are you sure you know what you're doing here? You see, they did not wait to see the effects of the healing before they obeyed the voice of the Lord. Dear ones, that is how faith responds. Responds to the invitations of Christ to come to him. Doesn't wait for some miraculous sign or wonder to occur. When God speaks and invites us to come to him, we come. Because he invites us to come. Not because we necessarily even feel like coming, but we come in obedience and say, Lord, thou dost know my heart. It's filled with corruption. And in even my coming, I question how sincere I am. But I want to come because I know it's the right thing to do. Help me with my unbelief. See, faith comes when the Lord invites. Faith is evidenced through obedience to God's commands, through the promises of Christ, the warnings of Christ, and obeying the doctrine and believing the doctrine of Christ, no matter how difficult or whatever it may cost us. A true expression of faith doesn't wait to see all of the results, to see the end, to see what consequences are going to be realized, and then act. doesn't wait for a vision to see down the corridors of time how all of this is going to play out. Faith acts in obedience to the Word of God now. What God says to us now. That's faith. Once the will of God is clearly understood by us, a true expression of faith, as we have noted, is evidenced by obedient works, for faith without works is dead. And let me say to you, dear ones, the firm and confident assurance of faith will be realized in our hearts and in our lives only, only when we are expressing our faith by our obedience, by our loving obedience. We can't expect that God is going to assure us of Faith, assurance of salvation. If we don't care about doing what the Lord has told us to do in his revealed will. And so in obeying him by faith, in obeying him out of love. The Lord does give us as we do so. That is when the Lord brings more and more of that assurance and increases our assurance of faith and salvation. And if we are seeking to know God's will and direction concerning something, 
a path that we should walk, a doctrine that we should believe. How will we receive that light that we need in that particular instance or circumstance? By being faithful with what we do already know. God is not going to give us more light and understanding in areas that we're unclear about if we're not being faithful in what he has already shown us and revealed to us. And finally, we come to the main point in the narrative here in Luke 17. Ten were healed, but only one returns to give thanks to the Lord. According to Luke 17, verses 15 and 16. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. This one returned and fell down on his face, a sign of worship, a sign of deep humiliation, a sign of sincere gratitude. Perhaps by the time the ten lepers were healed, they were a significant distance from the Lord or were out of sight from the Lord. And dear ones, here is precisely where they were tempted to show an unthankful heart. Not because they were speaking against God, but because they were forgetful. They didn't act immediately upon the blessing that they had received. Out of sight, out of mind, as the saying goes. They had the healing for which they had sought. Perhaps they reasoned, we've not been with our families for many months or perhaps even years due to our leprosy. After all, we can tomorrow return thanks to Christ or some other time return thanks to Christ for what he has done. And dear ones, when we do not immediately give thanks to the Lord, As we said, forgetfulness beclouds the heart of man that then procrastinates in this way. (laughs) Procrastinates or just simply, again, doesn't remember. For the nine lepers who kept running, it was just too great of an effort or sacrifice to take the time. At that particular point, to express their thanks to Christ for his boundless mercy to them. There were more important things to do. However, for the one leper who saw that he was healed, he immediately stopped dead in his tracks, returned to the Lord, and poured out his heart in thankful praise to God for all that the Lord Jesus Christ had delivered him from. The text says, and he was a Samaritan in Luke 17, 16, a Samaritan. Not exactly the one, at least from a human perspective, that you would expect to be returning to Christ. Uh, The Samaritans, you'll remember, 
uh, were outside of the covenant community. You remember that Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he met by the well in John 4.22, ye, that is the Samaritans, ye Samaritans, worship ye know not what. You don't know what you worship, the Lord said. We, that is we who are the Jews, God's covenant people, know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The Samaritans only held as holy and inspired the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. In fact, the Lord at one point told his disciples as he sent them out to preach the gospel, on a particular gospel mission, he said, don't go into any of the cities of the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. But only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Only to the Jews. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 7. Thus, there is a particular reason why it is noted in the word of God at this particular point that it was a Samaritan. That it was a Samaritan that returned to give thanks to the Lord. One who was outside the covenant community. Although the Lord sent his ministers to the Jew first, the gospel of salvation was also intended for the Samaritan and the Gentile. As we see later on, uh, Jesus does minister here uh, to this particular individual, Samaritan, uh, who was healed of leprosy. We see the woman by the well who was a Samaritan and the uh, people living within the city coming to Christ, acknowledge him, acknowledging him to be the Savior of the world, not just of Israel. We see the gospel going forth in Acts to the Jew first, but also to the Samaritan and to the Gentile. Peter says to Cornelius and his household, Cornelius being a Gentile, in Acts 10.34, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but the gospel, salvation, is of the Jews, it came from and through this line. They were his covenant people. The Lord came unto them, as we read in John chapter 1. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so he came unto the Jew to see his people brought unto himself. But they rejected him. They received him not. But to as many as received him, who are not Jewish, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Dear ones, salvation is not of our works. It's not of our physical lineage. Salvation is not of our baptism or any other ordinance of the church. It is of God's grace alone and through faith in Christ alone, even to the Samaritan even to the publican in the parable of Christ who could not look up into heaven because he knew of his wickedness and all he could do was beat his chest, cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It was that one that went away justified before God rather than the Pharisee 
who went through a whole litany of good works. Jesus responds by asking where the other nine were. And then he sends the Samaritan on his way with these assuring words, Thy faith hath made thee whole. You see, he was not made whole only as to his physical healings, but also as to his spiritual healing. He was made whole. But how was this faith that made the Samaritan leper whole evident in his life? The evidence is faith. The other nine lepers appeared to have had uh, perhaps some measure of faith by their act of obedience and running to see the priests even before they were healed. But it remains unclear as to whether there was some clear manifestation of faith in their lives. That is, in the lives of the nine. Because we hear nothing more of them. But the clear evidence of this leper's faith and trust in Jesus Christ was evidenced by his humble thankfulness to the Lord for the mercy that he had received. We know the work of God in this man's life. We're unsure about the work of God in the other nine. We know about this man because he was thankful. He bowed at the feet of Christ and expressed his thankfulness to Christ. Thankfulness, dear ones, is one of those significant evidences of the work of God's grace in your life and mine. Thankfulness to Christ. Second main point is the doctrine from the text. The primary object of this inspired account in the life and ministry of Christ is to graphically demonstrate the incredible, the incredible ingratitude of the Jewish people for all that God had given to them. They had been the recipients of amazing blessings from God. They had received such tangible expressions of God's mercy to them through the covenant of grace given to them from Mount Sinai and being called his people, being given commandments by God to lead them and to guide them and to direct them in the will of God, to show and demonstrate their love for him in light of all of his glorious salvation. They have been given repeated signs and miracles and wonders throughout their history. Invitations to come unto him. That he had taken them as a husband takes a wife to be his own. He had loved them and cared for them. But they had gone after other lovers. He had sent them prophets and priests to teach them the word of God, administer the ordinances of the Lord unto them. They'd even received the greatest privilege, the privilege of all privileges. And that was, they had been given the Lamb of God to take away their sins and the bread of life to feed their souls everlasting life, and they rejected him. 
He came into his own, as we said, but his own received him not. The Jews as a nation showed no demonstrable faith in Christ. And how was that expressed in this particular parable by the nine? They didn't show any thankfulness. They received the sign, the wonder, the healing, but there was no expressed thankfulness. This truth is especially evident in that there, as we said, were nine other lepers who were apparently Jews and only one Samaritan. You know, all ten of them were recipients of the same healing, of the same mercy, of the same wonder, but only a stranger to the covenant, this Samaritan, sincerely expressed his faith through heartfelt gratitude. The nine, it would appear, were certainly not rank pagans, for they do address the Lord Jesus, Master, they call out to him. All ten of them did. Furthermore, when they hear the word of Christ to go and show themselves to the priest, they immediately respond by going to the priest. It appears there was some acknowledgement of Christ to some degree. We might say they were members of the visible church by way of verbal profession that they made. But were they genuine believers? Well, the text does not clearly settle that issue. I would have you remember what the Lord said about many who will call him Lord, Lord on that final day of judgment in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Again, he doesn't say I knew you at one time, but now I don't know you as if they had fallen from grace, but I never knew you. You were truly never a part of me, even though you were part of the visible church and called me Lord, Lord. And that's the message the Lord wants us to hear today, to be simply a member of the visible church of Christ does not automatically guarantee salvation. The invitations made, the promises are issued to you, in the gospel and in the ordinances. But apart from faith and trust in Jesus Christ, turning from your own sin, laying hold of his righteousness and not your own, there is no salvation. There is no salvation in simply being a member of the visible church, simply saying, Lord, Lord, the doctrine here stated is that again a conspicuous evidence of saving faith is a heart of joyful thanksgiving for the many blessings received 
You cannot take God's covenant blessings for granted by proudly stating, I'm a covenanter, as if that's sufficient. I'm a covenanter. That's like saying, Lord, Lord. The Lord is still, dear ones, distinguishing the true Jew from the mere professing Jew, as we see in Romans 2, 28 and 29, Jews, there are those who are Jews inwardly, and there are those who are Jews in, uh, outward, merely outwardly. To those who truly know the mercy of Christ, every gift of God to them, the material gifts that they have right now, may not have all that you want, may not even have all that you need, but what you do have, thankfulness is expressed to the Lord for what you do have. And especially for the spiritual gifts and blessings which the Lord has bestowed upon us. Forgiveness of sin, the righteousness of Christ, everlasting life, heaven, the grace to persevere through this life no matter what Satan brings our way to knock us off course. Every spiritual blessing, every grace that's been given to us. That we are the heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Paul says that all things belong to us because we belong to Christ and everything belongs to Christ. Therefore, we're joint heirs with Christ. Everything belongs to us. The cry of these lepers was not, Jesus, Master, give me what I deserve, but have mercy upon me. Give me what I do not deserve. They cried out for Christ's mercy, dear ones, not for his justice. If we would receive the benefits of his salvation, if we would receive even those blessings he has promised to give to those who turn to him, it is only and always on the basis of God's grace in Christ Jesus. We must always approach God in one sense, dear ones, in one sense knowing our sin and utter unworthiness to come into his presence. But at the same time, in another sense, coming into God's presence with confidence, clinging to our advocate, our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who pleads his own righteousness and not our own, who pleads his own worthiness and not our own, you see, our attitude before the Lord must always be that of, as we said, that repentant publican. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Only one who knows his own sinfulness and his own unworthiness before God and knows what God has saved him or her from can, can sincerely express thankfulness for all that God has given to him. Only only those have eyes to see what God has given to them when they realize their unworthiness, their sinfulness, what God has rescued them from. And that was the thankfulness of the Samaritan leper. 
finally, the third point, the practical application of the text. First of all, the Samaritan's thanksgiving to the Lord was not rehearsed, canned, or vain repetition. You know, praise the Lord, that phrase can become profane speech. It can, it can become profanity when it is used without genuine expression of thanks to the Lord. When we don't really mean it. It's just that something we punctuate our sentences with. Praise the Lord. It's basically profane. Profane simply means to make something sacred, common, and ordinary. And so it becomes a profanity. Praise the Lord. We don't really mean it. Our thanksgiving to Christ should be so natural and voluntary that it flows like a mighty river from our souls to our mouths. I know that's not always the case, but that's what it should be. That's what it should be like in our lives. And we shouldn't be satisfied when it's not the case. We should ask the Lord, give us the grace that that praise and thanksgiving flows so naturally that my eyes become open to see more and more that for which I should be thankful. A begrudging thanksgiving like, well, if I have to do it, I'll do it. That kind of begrudging thanksgiving is no sincere thanksgiving at all. You know, parents, if, if you have to remind your children 25 times in the course of the day to say thanks or thank you, you know, especially when they're young, they're growing up, we're trying to teach our children to express their thanks, the things that they receive from you or from others. If you have to remind them 25 times in the course of the day, you, you just don't receive the same satisfaction, even though they do it. You don't receive the same satisfaction of knowing they really meant it. But when they finally come to the point where all on their own, they freely, voluntarily say, thank you, Dad. Thank you, Mom, for what you've given to me. Then, that can't but help warm your heart to such a degree and cause you to be so thankful to the Lord that your children have voluntarily expressed that thankfulness to you as parents. And there is nothing that will more greatly encourage children, parents, husbands, wives, pastors, elders, and members to persevere in diligent service than a sincere word of encouragement or expression of thanksgiving for a job well done. It will lighten the load like few things will do when one knows that his or her labors are not in vain, but they are appreciated. They are appreciated. The Samaritan second practical application. The Samaritan's thanksgiving was not a silent or a hidden 
thanksgiving, but rather a vocal and expressive giving of thanks. And so should our thanksgiving be. You know, the nine lepers opened wide their mouths to plead for Christ's mercy. But when he healed them, they became strangely speechless and kept running. Dear ones, although our emotions may be misused for ungodly purposes, we must never be afraid to express sanctified emotions or religious affections to the Lord or even to God's people at appropriate times for the kindness and mercy that's been shown to us. Earnest thanksgiving to God and others can no more be buried in the soul of a believer than Christ could remain buried in the grave. If it's earnest thanksgiving, it cannot simply remain buried unspoken. Thankfulness will arise in the heart of the Christian even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the most difficult circumstances that we face. Another practical application. The Samaritan's Thanksgiving was not of a broad, general kind that was directed more shotgun style at life in general. He fell before the feet of Christ and poured out his praise to the Lord. I've observed, and you probably have as well, a general kind of thankfulness by many unbelievers for blessings received. They may say, oh, I'm just so thankful for you know, the food that we received or uh, because so many people in poor countries don't have what we have. I'm just so thankful. But you see, thankful to whom? Uh, I'm just so thankful. That's a broad, general kind of thanksgiving. That's not the kind of thanksgiving that we as Christians should have. We should be very specific. Not shotgun style, but taking out a rifle and honing in on the target which is Jesus Christ and directing our praise and our thanksgiving to Him for what He has given to us. You know, this kind of broad, general thanksgiving, and we may be guilty of it at times ourselves, is essentially atheistic because it's not directed to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has given to us these good gifts. Learn to be specific in your thanksgiving. Don't simply be thankful in a general way, but be specific in your thanksgiving. Express thanksgiving for all the material and spiritual benefits you have received. Itemize them. Think in terms of what God has done for you today and given to you today. What he gave to you this past week were the last day of this year. What he has given to you over this past year, 2006. What are you thankful for? 
even though we pass through very severe trials, painful afflictions, we should never run out of things for which to be thankful. We may even be thankful according to God's word for the trial, not because we enjoy suffering for suffering's sake, but because the Lord is teaching us and training us. He's molding us and shaping us as a potter does clay, building us, building our character, stretching our faith, taking us out of our comfort zone and causing us to rely more and more upon Him. This past year has been a very heavy trial for a small, struggling church. And yet, we are to look back over this past year and to look for the blessings of God and to thank Him for them. He has drawn us closer to Himself. He has made us appreciate our communion with one another all the more. He has given us a greater hungering and thirsting to understand his truth to a greater degree. He has made heaven more precious to us where there will be no longer any division, where there will be no longer any schisms, disagreements amongst Christians, where we'll be one in doctrine. where we'll be one in fellowship and communion, uninterrupted by our sin or our our errors. If we cannot find many things, dear ones, for which to be thankful as this year comes to a close, it is because our hearts have not been softened and tenderized by what we've gone through, but have become hardened by what we've gone through. And that's a sad state of affairs. If we have become more hard and calloused and we can't think of anything to be thankful for, that indicates not the work of God's grace, but the work of the flesh in hardening our own hearts. We've become, at that point, filled more with bitter complaint than with joyful thanksgiving. We have forgotten the sinful leprosy from which we have been delivered by the free mercy of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, a practical application that I would mention is the thanksgiving of the Samaritan was not laced with pride or bitterness and neither should ours be. There was no expression of resentment to the Lord as if to say, Lord, you sure sure could have healed me sooner. Why did I have to go through all of this pain and agony for this number of months or years? Why did I have to suffer? There wasn't that kind of resentment toward the Lord. Why did I have to be separated from my family? From my friends? 
from the holy ordinances. But thanks anyway. Wasn't that kind of an attitude? The one who is genuinely thankful does not forget. True. He does not forget all the suffering, whether the suffering is due to his own sins or her own sins or suffering for righteousness sake. doesn't forget that which has happened in the past but he realizes God's grace is sufficient. God is always training us in what we suffer. A fifth and final application. Finally, dear ones, never ever forget, never ever forget you were once unclean spiritual lepers before God, cut off, from a living union and communion with Jesus Christ. There is certainly no need to to relive the filth and corruption of your past life or mine so as to sensationalize our testimony for the applause of men as happens at times when we sensationalize publicly our past, our past drug addiction, our past immorality, our past atheism, our past profanity of every kind from which we've been rescued. We don't have to sensationalize that stuff. But neither should we entirely forget it. Because that produces thanksgiving in our hearts because we never forget what God rescued and saved us from. Just as the Apostle Paul never forget, never forgot in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 through 10, how he was the chief persecutor of the church. He never forgot physically, violently taking husbands out of homes. And women crying and pleading with him. No, no. And children running after their fathers who are being led to be stoned to death because they were followers of Christ. He never probably forgot those events. Those were forever imprinted upon his memory. But the point that he's making in 1 Corinthians 15 is that, as he says in 1 Timothy, that he's the chief of sinners. He was at one time a persecutor and hater of Christ in the church. But he says, because of what he remembers, he was, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by God's grace. Let each painful memory of your past, dear ones, let each painful memory from the past turn your attention to the mercy of Christ who has rescued you rather than turning you to a heart of bitterness and resentment and hardening and callousing your heart. Let it turn you to Christ to soften your heart.
We don't live in the past. That's true. But we do remember the past so that we never forget the tender mercies of the Lord and so that we continue to have thanksgiving in our heart. Let us not be like Eve who believed the lie of Satan that God was unfair to withhold that one tree from her even though he had given her every other tree in the Garden of Eden to eat. That kind of ingratitude, dear ones, does flow from unbelief, which can be expressed this way, God does not really care for me. He really isn't going to provide all that I need. If he has given, dear ones, his only begotten son, how could he demonstrate his love to a greater degree for you? In Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Beloved, we know that truth. We know that truth that was just spoken. And we have heard it hundreds of times. The issue is not whether we know it, the issue is, do we really believe it and receive it? That if God has given to us his own son, he's going to provide for us every other thing that we need. How do we evidence that we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we evidence that? I submit to you, we express continually our thankfulness to the Lord for having delivered us from bondage to Satan, from the power of sin, from the guilt and damnation of sin which we deserved. And we express our thankfulness for every sip of water, for every crumb of bread, every use of our limbs to be able to walk and take one step, to be able to hold a book in our hand or a pen or pencil to write. We express our thankfulness to the Lord for every trial that has taken us out of our comfort zones and has stretched us beyond limits we thought we couldn't possibly be stretched that far and still persevere in trusting in Christ. And we express our thankfulness in the inheritance that is ours as the heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ in the heaven which he has so wondrously and gloriously prepared for those who trust him, love him, and obey him. That is, dear ones, a supreme Evidence of our faith in Jesus Christ and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our thanksgiving. At the end of this year, we need to reflect back over this past year, 2006. We need to be thinking, what am I thankful for? What has God done in my life? What has God given to me? Through everything through which I passed yes, and suffered and experienced. That is an evidence of your faith in Jesus Christ.
Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are such an unthankful people, given to complaint, given to anxiety and worry and bitterness and resentment, given to even forgetfulness at all the good, gracious, and loving things that we have received from thy most kind and good hand. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.